Vasato ma sad gamaya Tamaso ma jyotir gamaya Mrityor mam amritam gamaya Avir avir maeti Rudrayate dakshinam mukham Te namam pahinityam Te namam pahinityam Om Shanti 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 Lead us from the unreal to the real Lead us from darkness to light. Lead us from death to immortality. Light us through and through and guide us evermore with thy loving presence. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I've been um, sick for the past two weeks with a chest cold and a cough. And I tried to get out of lecturing here by trying to get our Swami Atmatatwananda, our Shiva Maharaj, to speak for me. But he has not, he's declined my request. I told him, all you have to do is stand here and do what you do best, Talk. But he wouldn't do that. So today, <clears throat> I've decided to talk about basically Vedanta and spiritual life. We're going to call it Vedanta, it's nuts and bolts. If you're like me, um, I, I used to come to these lectures and I, I went for many months and for many years. And I heard <clears throat> various different topics and was listening to sort of we call different pieces to this puzzle. But I was never able to really put the whole thing together. We would hear about Atman, Brahman, Yoga, and Samadhi. Um, this light we are not going to use because it's going to affect the screen. So if you can tell the person not to use the light. No, no, outside, outside, outside. Uh, they turn on the lights. The lights are up on there. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Um, so, what I was saying, though, is that I would come to these different lectures and hear different topics, but I, for myself, was not able to fully understand this whole picture. What is the relationship of all these different pieces that we listen to when we come every Sunday? How is it all put together? So what we're going to do today is going to try and create a clear and cohesive picture as to what Vedanta and spiritual life is about. Now you may say, like, good luck. Well, <clears throat> we're going to try to develop an overall framework and... Um, by the time you leave today, you're either going to be a lot more confused 
or you'll have a clear idea about this thing we call Vedanta. When I was in, um, in India, one Swami told me that spiritual life can be categorized into three categories. He said, the goal, which essentially is, what is our reality? The means to attain it, which is our spiritual practices, and the experiences, which are associated with those spiritual practices. When we talk about the reality, the reality in which we all experience, Vedanta says that it manifests in three ways. Either as God, the individual soul, or the world. When we experience the reality as the almighty ruler, the protector of the universe, the sole refuge for seekers of liberation, we call that reality God. When we experience the reality within this body-mind complex, we call it the individual soul. And when we experience the reality as something outside of us, we call it the world. So let us first begin by seeing what most of us, what most people experience reality to be. A pragmatic definition of reality is that which we value most and what appears most real to us. Now, everybody values something in life, which for them is their reality. Let's take, for example, the mind of a teenage boy. What is his reality? Well, they may think that, God, that girls are gods or goddesses to them. He measures people based on skin beauty. He accepts people or rejects people by what they look like. When he is in love, he feels that the whole universe is talking to him about his beloved. As he grows up, his sense of reality changes. He may grow up to be a stockbroker or a salesperson. To him, money becomes more real than anything else. It's as if money is God. He worships it, thinks about it, and dreams, how can I make more? He sees the world as a means of either getting more money or losing money. Time is measured in money. Love is based on the amount of money spent as opposed to the emotions or feeling behind it. People are valued by the amount of money they make. So, what you take as reality is that which you value most. In fact, many times in the Gospel of Ramakrishna, we see Ramakrishna referring to giving up lust and greed. I think, in some ways, he was talking about getting rid of these two ways of viewing the world. Either we view the world in terms of money, or we view the world in terms of superficial beauty. 
Now, all these things may appear real, but in fact, there's one thing which is ultimately real, which does not change and cannot be negated. Do you know what we call that? We call that God, or consciousness, or ultimate reality. In Vedanta, we think of this unchanging reality or what we call God, in two ways. The impersonal, which we call Brahman, and the personal, which we call Ishvara. When we think of ourselves and the universe as consciousness, then we conceive ultimate reality to be Brahman, or the impersonal God. We experience that as our very own self. We seek to hold on to the sense that I am the reality itself. We experience ourselves without any modifications or limitations. It is transcendental and its real nature cannot be described but only experienced. But the sages that have experienced it have tried to describe it in these limited ways. And this is what they've said. It is infinite existence, consciousness and bliss. It undergoes no change and is eternal. It is the reality both within and beyond the visible world. It is not bound by time, space, or the law of causality. It is not something we can become aware of like an object, but it is something which we are. So instead of referring to Brahman as it, we should refer to Brahman as I, because I am that reality. Now, when we think of the same God, the same reality, as someone we desire a personal relationship with, one we can talk with and worship, then we call the same ultimate reality as Ishvara, or personal God. Here are a few of his qualities. And as most of you know, although God can be thought of as the masculine, feminine, or neuter, for the sake of simplicity and consistency, we're going to refer to God in the masculine. He is the eminent one who maintains order, harmony, and regulates the universe. He is referred to as Ishvara, an extra-cosmic ruler, when we see him from the outside. Like Kali, Vishnu, or Shiva. He is also known as the Antaryaman, the inner controller, when we feel him from within. One Swami, when I was in India, I would refer to God, and I kept pointing up towards the sky. I was like, oh, God is love. And the Swami would take my hand, and he would say, why are you pointing up to the sky? He said, he'd take my hand, and he pointed it to my heart. He said, God is most prominent right here. Now, God has form 
and is formless. However, his forms are like different costumes under which he is always the same. He is seen as the embodiment of love, compassion, and wisdom, and not as a judge nor punisher. Now, this personal God can also manifest in a human form, and that is what we call an avatar. An avatar is a special manifestation of God, especially in the human form. He is eternally conscious of his identity. He chooses to come down and take a body out of compassion for humanity. The influence of his life and teachings grows stronger as time goes by. Ramakrishna has referred to the avatar as Kopala Mochana. That means one who can erase our, for our fate from our forehead. It is through the avatar's grace that he can destroy our previous karmas and set us free. Now, it's important to note what Ramakrishna has said about God. He says, Kali is Brahman, and Brahman itself is Kali. It is the same reality. When he is inactive and not engaged in the creation, maintenance, and destruction of the world, we call him Brahman. But when he is engaged in these activities, we call him Kali. It is the same individual with different names and forms. So what we see here is that there is only one reality. And in one state of mind, when it's free from limitations and modifications, we call that reality Brahman, or the impersonal. And in another state of mind, when we desire a relationship, we call it the personal, or Ishvara. Now, another manifestation of reality is the individual soul. What is the individual soul? Or in other words, who am I? Well, in the Taittiriya Upanishads, it speaks of each of us having five layers covering the human soul. The physical body, the vitality sheath, the mental sheath, the intelligence sheath, and the blissful sheath. Within these sheets dwells the Atman, which is self-luminous and self-revealing. Whatever the light of the Atman illumines becomes real, living, and conscious. It illumines our body, our vitality, our mind, our intellect, and our blissful sheets. Through each succeeding sheet, consciousness becomes dimmed, where the physical body, the outermost sheet, is only a faint reflection of the infinite consciousness within. The Atman is of the nature of existence, knowledge, and bliss. Because of this, whatever the light of the Atman falls on 
we gain awareness, intelligence, and insight. It is important here to note that we are the Atman. We are this pure light of consciousness. This light has the power to create a livingness to anything to which it is focused upon. So whatever the light of the Atman falls on, we become aware of and perceive ourselves to be. Now let us take an example here. And if you look at the diagram, you'll see what I'm saying. If I were, for example, Mother Teresa, when the Atman's light illumines the physical sheath, my body, the Atman's light here illumines the physical sheath, my body, I feel that I am five feet tall with a medium built and brownish gray hair. When it illumines the vitality sheet, my pranas, I'm aware of how energetic or lethargic I feel. When it illumines the mental sheet, my mind, I become aware of my emotions and my thoughts. And when it illumines my intelligence and blissful sheath, I'm aware of my innermost self and feel the bliss of my own existence. And when this light of the Atman goes out through my senses, my eyes, my ears, and my nose, I become aware of my universe. So, According to Vedanta, we think of ourselves in two ways. Either as the lower self, the limited self, which we normally term the personality, or the higher self, our Atman Brahman nature, which is our true essence. Now for most of us, although the Atman's light is shining in all five sheets, we are aware of it only in the first three sheets. Our body, vitality, and mind. It is the combination of these three sheets which creates our personality. And you may ask, what is our personality? Well, the personality is who we think we are and act as. Our personality is composed mainly from what the culture our family, our friends have said about us. We internalize these comments and create a false self-image. We believe ourselves to be this and act accordingly. It is in the mind, the mental kosha, where our self-image is implanted and it colors the rest of our personality. It creates either the sense of Security or insecurity. Superiority or inferiority. This self-image is what normally all of us identify ourselves to be. Let's take an example here. In one recent Dear Abby, a young woman, Susie, writes, Dear Abby, I am a 30-year-old, attractive, rich personal attorney who is looking for the love of my life. 
My parents and friends keep fixing me up. I recently had cosmetic surgery to look more like Angelina Jolie. I think I'm a catch, but unfortunately, the guys I date don't. I am feeling depressed, insecure, and irrational. My problem is when I become ex- I become extremely threatened when I'm romantically rejected. When I start dating someone and he doesn't feel the same way, it negatively affects my self-esteem. I wonder, what am I doing wrong? Why don't guys like me? How can I get over feeling so insecure in relationships so that it doesn't affect my sense of self? Now we may ask the question here, what is it here that forces Susie to identify with her sense of self, her self-image? Well, in Vedanta, we would say it's the ego. The ego is the agent of limitation. It takes the infinite self and makes it think it's a finite individual. The ego takes the pure sense of I am and attaches it to everything that it is not. It is that which takes the pure sense of I am and attaches it to the body and says, hey, look at my body. It takes the pure sense of I am and attaches it to the pranas and says, hey, I'm feeling lethargic and depressed. It takes the pure sense of I am and attaches it to the mind and says, hey, these are my ideas. In Sanskrit, the ego is called ahamkara. Aham is I, and kara is maker. The ego is literally the I maker. It attaches itself to everything that it does not belong to. And here, this is precisely what Susie is doing. She is falsely identifying her sense of self with her Angelina body, her profession and her rejections. Now the purpose of spiritual life is to turn the light of the Atman back onto itself. When this happens, there is no world nor universe. It is the simple awareness of I am. Not that she is a woman, nor attractive, nor rejected. It is just a sense of self-existence without any definition. It is the experience of infinity, which is beyond body and mind and speech. Susie now turns spiritual, and instead of writing to Dear Abby, she writes to her local Swami and says, Dear Swami, I just got married and am known as Mrs. Susie Pitt. I guess she got her man. The problem is I am constantly fighting with my husband. It seems that we cannot agree on anything. 
to get some peace, I'm trying to meditate. This is great. Now I want something more. Maybe samadhi. I was told by some of my friends to read the Gospel of Ramakrishna. There, he repeatedly says that we must renounce. But I have a question. What should I renounce? Should I renounce that deadbeat of a husband of mine who stays home and watches TV all day? Or should I give up practicing law, pack up my bags, and go to India and join an ashram? I'm willing to do both. What is Ramakrishna saying when he says, to become spiritual, we must renounce? Sincerely, confused, bewildered, and ready to go. Let us see what Swami Bhuteshananda, one of the former presidents of the Ramakrishna order, says about this. So, so far, we have talked about God and the individual soul. Now, what about the world? In viewing the world, there are also different ways of seeing it. It is directly dependent on our state of mind. As our mind changes, we find that the world around us changes. When we feel ourselves to be nothing more than flesh and blood human beings. The world is real, independent, and solid. All our hopes, fears, and aspirations are tied into the sense of reality, just like the two previous examples given about money and beauty. But as spiritual aspirants, we should view the, view, we should view the world as the Vedic Rishis did. They experience the universe as living, vibrant, and conscious. They saw everything in the universe personifying consciousness. The world was just an expression of that consciousness. It is the divine expressing itself through the trees, the sky, and the sun. In and through the particular manifestations of the world, there is a universal reality. 
What we normally see is temporal. It comes and goes with time. But behind the world, there is an eternal reality which is infinite, beyond time and space. This is what the Chandogya Upanishad says as Sarvam Kalvidam Brahma. All this is verily Brahman. There was one Swami, Swami Shraddhanand in Sacramento. Uh, does anybody remember him? Did you ever have a chance to go with him in Sacramento and walk with him when he walked in, into the gardens? So I had that chance once. And what I remember was that as we strolled through the gardens, he would literally talk to the trees and different plants. And as you're walking with them, it would appear that these plants and trees would also respond back to him. In fact, I'm going to tell you a story. This was happened when I went with Swami Sarvadevananda to Sacramento. Swami Shraddhananda had just come out of his room after finishing his meditation. He came into breakfast and he told us that as he was meditating, he was doing his japa. And as he was sitting on his bed doing his japa, the wall started to do japa. The bed started to do japa. The pillow started to do japa. Everything around him was doing japa. Then he told us that this body had to go to the bathroom. So he went and told each and every individual object in the room, Mr. Pillow, you please keep saying japa. This body has to go to the bathroom. Please, for, please forgive it. It'll come right back. But you continue to say japa. Mr. Wall, you keep saying japa. This body has to go to the bathroom, but it will come back. Mr. Bed, you keep saying japa. The various objects in the room, he had asked their permission, and his body went and used the restroom. He said to his delight, when he came back and sat on his bed, everything was vibrating with japa. Everything was conscious, everything was living, and everything was vibrating with that japa. We have now seen that reality manifest in three ways. Again, we have God, we've got the individual soul, and we've got the world. Let us now take a look at the relationship among these three. What is the relationship here between the soul and the world? It is bondage. Because of the ego... The divine spirit has wrongly identified itself with this body and mind complex. Let's take, for example, Susie. For her, the world is a never-ending experience of trying to satisfy her own desires. But when she finds her new husband, every time she goes home, she desires to meditate and practice yoga. But every time she goes home, she finds her husband on the couch watching TV and drinking beer. She ends up losing her tranquility and reacts by shouting and getting angry. Every time she reacts, she sets into motion two effects. One is the individual and the other is cosmic. First, 
she creates an impression a samskara within her own mind which will propel her to repeat the action in the future her action is also converted into a merit or demerit and is stored in the cosmic mind which will have consequences in her next life these actions will determine the type of body the environment and the longevity in her future births the law of karma based on the principle of cause and effect says all actions done with intentions have physical consequences at a future time let's repeat this all actions done with intentions have physical consequences at a future time what determines whether these actions are meritorious or demeritorious whether they're good or bad that is ritam ritam or universal moral order is regarded as a natural self self-regulating cosmic principle which runs the universe in a rhythmic and harmonious way by being in tune with ritam one is in harmony with the universe and one's actions become meritorious by violating ritam one is out of harmony and consequences are brought about by the law of karma it is this karmic cycle here that keeps the soul bound to the world however fortunately for us divine grace god can modify or undo our past karma so the question may be asked how does the soul attain freedom from this cycle here well vedanta offers four yogas as a means to liberation Yoga means union of the individual soul with the divine. It's the process by which the soul recognizes that it is none other than the atman, god or consciousness itself. Through this process, the light of the atman that we normally see here that goes out through the body and mind is turned back onto itself. the body should be directed to the higher self or god by karma yoga through selfless service selfless um, through selfless work loving service and self sacrifice the emotions should be directed to god or the higher self by bhakti yoga through intense love prayer and self sacrifice the mind should be directed to the higher self by gyana yoga through discrimination self analysis and the study of scriptures the chosen ideal should be meditated upon by raja yoga until it becomes luminous and living and finally 
that chosen ideal will be merged back into the higher self. Swamiji says that all yogas are equally valid paths to liberation and that a synthesis of the yogas is the best course to follow. He says a perfect person is one who has, ba- who has a balance between emotions, self-analysis, concentration, and self-sacrifice. Now, as we practice the different type of yogas, what kind of experiences can we expect to achieve? Well, in the great master, the life of uh, Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Sardananda talks about how the practice of meditation can lead to the experience of samadhi. This is what he says. In the beginning, a devotee meditates on some form of God. He cannot bring the complete picture of the person before him. And so, sometimes the feet or the face appear before him and again dissolves. This is what we call is dharna. Dharna is an attempt to hold the mind or an object, is an attempt to focus or hold the mind on an object. But as you try to do that, other thoughts will invade the area of focus. It is like a film strip with different frames representing different thoughts as you try to meditate. Now, as you all know, most of us probably face this dilemma. We try to meditate on the Ishtadevata, but then 30 seconds into our meditation, a thought comes, another one thought, then another thought, and a chain of thoughts, until we remember, oh, what was I supposed to do? I was supposed to meditate on the Ishtadevata. And again, we pull the thought back into our focus. And again, it goes away. So Swami Sardinana says that as we proceed, this is what he says. When meditation becomes deep, the complete picture of that form appears before his mind's eye in vivid and unbroken continuity as long as the mind remains steady and unswerving. This is dhyana. Dhyana is what we call true meditation. It's the conscious maintenance of a steady stream of thought on an object at a higher center of consciousness. It is like looking at a film strip with the same image coming up again and again and again. And this is what happens when we have a good meditation, is that we get into a flow where we're able to see the Ishtadevata and we're not distracted by any other thoughts. And we can meditate maybe for 5 or for 10 or for 15 minutes where there's a continuous flow of one stream of thought. Then Swami Sardinanda says, Afterwards, according to the progress in the intensity of meditation, the devotee becomes conscious of the movement, the smile, the speech, and ultimately the touch of that living form. Then the devotee sees with eyes open or shut the benign and living presence of the Lord 
and his graceful movements everywhere and in all conditions. This is what we would call samadhi. It's the complete absorption between the subject and the object where the subject loses any sense of separation. When I was in India, one of our senior swamis was asked, what happens when you attain samadhi? Usually, most of the swamis will not say anything about their own personal experiences. It is very, very rare. They do not tend to um, show off what you call their own ego. So in a rare mood, this one swami did say something about the experience of samadhi, and I'd like to share that with you. His response was, you see a new mysterious inner light in the region of the heart. In that light, the Ishtadevata's image appears luminous, living, and vivid. You feel his presence in the heart. There is intense self-awareness. That luminous image is present within you all the time, whatever you're doing, whether you're eating, reading, or talking. Your personality gets split into two. One is constantly witnessing the luminous image within, and the other, the ego, does various actions. Great inner bliss is experienced within. And you know for certain the truth of the experience. There is no question about it. And finally, great love and compassion for all people spontaneously arises in you. Now, not only are these experiences limited to our shrine when we meditate, but they can take place any place and any time, even in outer space. It's interesting to note here that two years after this experience, Edgar Mitchell, the NASA astronaut, retired from NASA and founded the Institute of Noetic Science 
dedicated to studying the frontiers of consciousness. So by the experience of samadhi, when the mind becomes free from modifications and limitations, one can eventually become established in their true nature and become liberated from this world. They will no longer go through the cycle of birth and rebirth. They have reached the goal. The goal of Vedanta, therefore, is liberation from the bondage of ignorance and the attainment of enlightenment. As Christ has said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now before we conclude this, I'd like to make two comments. One is that what I've given you here is an outline, an overall framework for spiritual life. One Swami told me that it's okay to develop sort of an outline or a, 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 a sort of a, a, a way of seeing spiritual life, but it shouldn't be too constricted. Have a general outline and have your experiences fill in the gaps. Because as you, as your experiences come up and as you change, your concept of spiritual life will also change. So you want to keep your outline, keep your map of spiritual life fluid. Let it be flexible. Have an understanding, but allow your experiences to fill in the gaps in between. Don't try to get too precise. <clears throat> I'm going to show you now, I'd like to conclude with a, a small video. This was shown in the Parliament of Religions in Australia. It is called with one voice. Here what happens is that you're going to have different spiritual practitioners from different traditions talking about their mystical experiences. And it's interesting to note here that as they talk, you do find some similar patterns. Once one, one, um, one person in the Parliament of Religions, I was told from the Jain tradition, defined religion in this way. They said that religion can be defined in three circles. You have an outer, three concentric circles. An outer circle, which is what he called your exoteric religion, which is the paraphernalia that occurs in all religions. It's like when you go to Mass in Catholicism, or you come here for a puja. It is the basic, it is the basic things that religion does and practices. As, as, as a group. Then there is another concentric circle inside called the mystical circle. In that circle, what happens is you make God your own. You go to a puja, you see the puja, but then you, you personalize the puja to develop a relationship between you and the divine. You take those external experiences internalize them and create a relationship with the divine. That is what they call this center um, circle, the mystical circle. And at the hub of the circle, the third circle, the very hub, is the experience. And that is what he said that all religions should aim for, is to try to experience what religion is all about. And in the hub, you'll find similarities. 
So what I'd like to do is show you this video shown at the Parliament of Religions, and we're only going to watch this chapter called Personal Mystical Experiences. Thank you. 
start the time. And I was teaching English in Bangkok, and I had a friend, and we were both just beginning our exploration of Buddhism. And we were just sitting in his garden one afternoon, and he was reading from a Tibetan text called the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. And he was just reading the text, and I was sitting there, and I happened to be very still and very concentrated. And one of the one of the lines refers to it as unborn. So the word unborn. And somehow, just conditions came together, and just on hearing the word unborn, something happened. And it was like the unborn, the unborn born. For, you know, it was just it was just a split second, but it was like a, a kind of lightning bolt, right? That just totally reorganized my understanding of things. It was rush hour, so cars were all over the place. You smelled the pollution coming from their exhaust, the noise. So I'm walking, and that's the scene for a few moments, and then without any forethought on my part without any effort whatsoever, totally unexpected, everything switched. Everything changed in an instant. The peace, the perfection, the unity, the light that is the basis and the underlying support for all of this came forward. And all the activity, the noise, the, the names, the forms, everything, took on sort of almost like a wavy reality and shifted backwards. It was there, but it didn't really matter. What mattered, what was most present, was this peace, this unshakable peace. Everywhere I looked, everywhere, there was just peace. Peace and peace. The entire universe is pervaded by me. In that eternal form of mind, which is not manifest to the senses, speaks Krishna, a deity from the Hindu tradition. Even though I am not within any creature, all creatures exist within me, although they do not exist within me physically. That is my divine mystery. How can one describe the indescribable? In the mystical view of reality, the distinction between self and other disappears. Where physical and perceptual boundaries previously existed, there remains only wholeness and unity. Siddhartha Gautama, an Indian prince known as the Buddha, taught that ultimate freedom is not outside ourselves. It is not only within us, but it is our very nature. Although there are many pathways to this living truth, the ultimate reality is nothing other than life itself. It is an experience available to each of us this very moment. The practices used to move toward this mystical summit and the words used to describe it may vary. But all mystics agree that this living truth 
is ever present within our hearts. Thank you. Om Purnamidam Purnamidam Purnat Purnabhutachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishyate Om Shanti 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 All that is invisible is verily the infinite Brahman. All that is visible is also the infinite Brahman. The whole universe has come out of the infinite Brahman. Brahman is infinite, although the whole universe has come out of it. Om, peace, peace, peace.